Yes, sir, it's the G.I. Journal again, your radio newspaper of the AEF, the paper that prints all your contributions from overseas. Men, on the target range, a bull is a clean hit. Well, here's a man who, while he may not be a hit, is definitely a lot of bull. Your original editor-in-chief, Kay Kaiser. Well, hiya, men. Hiya, Kay. Oh, well, 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 say, men, it's sure a man-size help and a pleasure being your editor again. This is your five-star final, and standing by are your five-star reporters. So then, of course, our star outside reporter, Professor Colonna, who ought to be calling in with a big story right now. Uh, hello? Uh, hello, city desk? Hello, desk. This is Kelowna. I'm overseas with the ground troops. We're on a forced march. A forced march? Really? Yes, and we're carrying full field packs and everything. We're really loaded. <laughs> Kelowna. Of course, some of us are loaded more than the others. This one is from... Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your host, Dodd Abernathy. Jeff Kopsetta and Henry Sledge. We interrupt this program to bring to you your normally scheduled program. That is the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II based podcast. And that is us. And this is Jeff. This is Henry. And our guest for tonight is Mr. Stephen, mystery middle name. How are you guys doing tonight? <laughs> pretty good. Pretty good. Thanks for uh, thanks for having us on again. Thanks for. Well, I, you guys have to be here. Steven's the one I'm having on. You guys are required. You're enlisted. You're on the we roster. Have to be here. Unless you go AWOL and I got to send out some half-assed WTSP MP who has a weird limp to track you down. Um, you know, you're stuck here. You're you're here for the duration. Jeff forced me to be here. Yep. See, Jeff's our half-assed MP with a weird limp until we can afford a, a, another one with a limp on the other side. And by Check the way, take that box. <laughs> Mr. Paul, I know you're listening to the show, and you told me that you've almost called in two or three times, but you're a little too scared, which concerns me. So if you guys are watching this on the live stream and you want to give us a call and talk to us, give us a call at 239-299-3380. I was at an event this weekend up in, uh, I was going to say Bushnell, that's a different event, up in Paris, Florida, and I actually had a couple of guys say, oh, I listen to your podcast while I'm at work. Um, I watch the live stream while I'm doing paperwork, and so... You know, every once in a while, we're kind of talking about this on the OG5 podcast we just did a quick snippet of. It's like, sometimes, you know, you, you kind of wonder, you know, obviously, if you look at your numbers, but you're like, is anybody listening? And then the the times that you're actually out in an event or somewhere and someone says, oh, I, I listen to the show. It's like, it's like, oh, you're the guy. <laughs> I was at an event like two years ago, and I, I just met somebody for the first person. And he, for the first time, was up in, uh, at a Georgia event. And he was talking to one of his friends. He's like, you recognize that voice? He's like, huh? He's like, that's the guy I forced you to listen to when we were driving for four hours. <laughs> and so it's, it's nice when you have the opportunity to uh, meet some people. But uh, it's cold here in Florida. I think it's like 68 degrees. <laughs> How are you all doing with the, the new winter upon us weather change? Uh, well, we had winter about two weeks ago on a Tuesday. It's 77 degrees today. Yeah, because you're like you were posting like photos like out in the snow. <laughs> it was like, where are you at? Oh yeah, that was that was the snowmageddon last one uh, with that February. Yeah, yeah, it was February. Steven gets extra points for wearing the uh, WTSP T-shirt. Shout out to you. That's what I'm to do that. <laughs> what's that, Steve? Uh, what's that, Steve? You're you're you broke up a little bit. Oh no, I said uh, thank you for sending me a replacement. <laughs> Oh, yeah, you're the one. Uh, yeah, our vendor changed their way of doing things. And funny thing is when Jeff sent me that photo, I saw a guy on TikTok who was using the same vendor, and he was complaining that some of their shirts were having issues. But luckily for us, you're, 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 that shirt that that happened to was the only one that I either know of that happened to or the only one that you know they reached out and, and uh, touched us and said that uh, that it was an issue. I want to play something I recorded here real quick. Um, because I'm reading, I'm still reading September hope and I was bringing this up at the event I was at this weekend. Cause we we're doing a, the Von Kessinger express. And it was actually a lot of, it was funny. A lot of people there in airborne and not a single 101st. It was almost like someone sent on a memo, which no one did, but everybody there had an 82nd airborne patch on their sleeve. But I was reading this in September hope. And this is something I didn't know. And be interesting if you guys did as with the previous day's mission, few of the glider pilots had trained co-pilots with them. They simply chose a competent looking airborne soldier 
put them in the right seat and quickly brief them on how to fly the glider. Aboard one Waco, Lieutenant James Fox, a glider pilot in the 441st Troop Carrier Group, selected a sergeant who was in charge of the bazooka team. The aircraft was loaded with a jeep and accompanying supplies. There's nothing to it, he told the skeptical sergeant. It's just like driving a truck. Private Ralph Smith, a sniper with the 101st Airborne Division, had been chosen by his commander to accompany the jeep and its driver to landing zone W. As paratroopers, Smith and the driver were already leery of riding in the rickety glider. As they flew along, the pilot turned and dispensed complicated instructions on how to land the Waco if he got hit. Smith and the jeep driver glanced at each other apprehensively and then looked at the pilot. Sir, you can do all three of us a big favor, the jeep driver said. Don't get hit. This has been an excerpt from September Hope, the American side of a bridge too far by John C. McManus. So I was amazed to find out. Now, I don't know if this is simply an Operation Market Garden thing because they had this is the biggest use of gliders at all time. And so maybe they took their trained co-pilots and get, made them pilots. But the fact that you're in the air, this wasn't discussed on the ground, but you're in the air in a glider and the pilot turns around and says, oh, you look squared away. Come here. Let me teach you something. <laughs> and if I die, here's how you land this thing. And by the way, something else I didn't know about gliders, they had steering wheels like a tractor. It wasn't an aileron and a stick. It was literally flying with a steering wheel, and I guess you could just slide the whole damn thing over to the passenger seat. And, I mean, could you imagine being that guy, Jeff? You're sitting behind well, me. The first thing that comes to mind is, I don't, maybe they, did they turn around and pick somebody, or did they go, hey, I need a volunteer? No. Nah, Never volunteer. <laughs> well, I think that's why they didn't ask for volunteers. I think they literally said, um, I like the way you, uh, have your collar on or your your helmets at an, a jaunty tilt <laughs> get up here <laughs> and i just i it's just insane and uh there was actually in according to the book there's a lot of a lot of the guys who were just flying like heavy artillery and jeeps they were in there by themselves and they said but with all the downdraft and updraft and cross draft from all the planes up there they by the time they got on the ground they were just physically exhausted from fighting that steering wheel and trying to keep their their glider level so it didn't get in the way of the plane above them or below them or to the left and right. And I guess the amount of exertion put forth on those pilots was insane. Yeah, and it, you know, it kind of reminds me of towards the end of the war, you know, the air war in Europe when uh, it just wasn't worth it to have that extensive uh, bombardier training for, you know, when we're sending over hundreds and hundreds of bombers to, to, to bomb Europe. Just get an enlisted guy that can go click with a toggle and drop the bombs, open the bomb base and drop the bombs when the group leader or, or the you know the squadron leader, whatever, whatever that lead bombardier, whenever he drops them, you drop them. Did and they it, start doing that? <clears throat> well, they started doing that, I think, in, in 1944, I want to say. <clears throat> but yeah, they were just they were called toggliers. Wow. They, okay. were just, they were simply. Yeah, this is when they were starting to use the Mickey device where they would remove the ball turret, put the radar dome there, you know, yeah. that when, when we were using radar to bomb through heavy smoke screens or, you know, then weather wasn't as much a factor over the target. Um, but yeah, it's just, it wasn't worth it to be training these guys to be bombardiers when if the lead bombardier drops the bombs, Hey, you flip the switch. Well, what happens if the lead bomber gets shot out of the sky? Do they have well, a, a redundancy you're system? Have contingency plans and, and, and they may take a couple echelons and combine into one. Or, or fly, you know, because they were typically in a, in a three or four plane group. Yeah. So if one loses, somebody else is going to fill in. They're going to have more than one guy. Uh, but I would say probably one out of every three or four bombers only had the bombardier, you know. So if you've got 300 bombers up there in the air, you probably only got 100 trained bombardiers because you just there's just no need to have 300 bombardiers in the air, you know, when you all have the same target. So kind of a similar instance where, you know, hey, you look like you could do this. We don't need to train people and all that other stuff. It's, hey, you, you know. Well, the crazy thing is, and one of the complaints that the glider rider NCOs had was the glider pilot's job was to get them from point A to point B. Once that glider's on the ground, they were not trained in infantry soldiering. They were trained by the Army Air Corps to fly that that glider, they had, you know, basic boot camp marksmanship, but they did not go on to do infantry training, field tactics. Their job was to land the glider 
and make their way back to get taken back to wherever their kickoff point was. And in the op- in the case of Operation Market Garden, the NCOs are complaining because now you've got two, three hundred of these guys out there who aren't willing to do shit. And a lot of them end up getting put on guard duty when they start, you know, getting all these Germans. But a lot of them weren't even willing to even. And since they're technically a brand, uh, part of the Army Air Corps, the um, airborne NCOs had no authoritative power over them. So they didn't have to listen to them if they didn't want to. Some of them obviously picked up a rifle in, in a survival situation. But once things died down, it was like, see you later. And they just start walking I, the other direction. I just finished McManus's book, Americans at D-Day. Mm-hmm. And he talks a little bit about the, the glider course, but I actually did not know that. But I'd kind of wondered about that. Just, you know, what were these guys supposed to? Because, I mean, they really weren't rated pilots. Mm-mm. They were basically trained to fly that glider. And, the, and when you're the NCO of 82nd Airborne or 101st, and then you find out that the British equivalent to the glider pilots were cross-trained, and so their job was to land and then be a fighting man, not to retreat yeah. and wait for the next mission. They're like, why aren't we cross-training these guys? But uh, Army Air Corps wasn't down for the cause. And that book, September Hope, has got me so interested in the whole glider side of it and learning more about them as well as the um, – Operation Market Garden. I just this book just came in the mail today. I haven't even cracked it open yet. It's called Four Hours of Fury, and because um, I was looking online for some more eighty second Airborne and glider stories, this is the untold story of World War II's largest airborne invasion and the final push into Nazi Germany by James M. Uh, Fenelon. So um, I'll be reading this here shortly, and then the book that I actually ordered during the last episode finally showed up, which is the uh, Peleliu tri- tri- um, Tragic Triumph. The Untold Stories of the Pacific War, Forgotten Battle by Bill D. Ross. And so these will be the next two books I'm reading after I finish up September Hope. But um, it's, I really want to learn more about the glider side because you don't hear a lot of people, you know, talking about in the living history world. You know, they're kind of like the unspoken word of the airborne. And from according to the statistics in September Hope, a majority of the airborne troops on the ground were actually glider riders there was more of them than were jumping out of the planes. It really? Yeah. At least during operation market garden, at least. Yeah. Huh? There was a lot well, there- in further operations, you know, especially the uh, jump over the Rhine, you know, C-47s were carrying two Waco gliders at the same time being towed right behind them. So inherently, you know, instead of just training all these troops ready to jump out of the plane, they've been stuffing guys in the back of the gliders. Even same thing with the British too, with their gliders. Well, everything in tow right behind them and it's amazing and and steve sounds like he knows a little bit on on the subject too it's amazing to think that these wood and canvas gliders had enough updraft to carry jeeps and large artillery pieces it's like you would think okay we can fit you know 12 15 guys in there at 130 pounds a piece but then they're putting jeeps and artillery pieces in there (laughs) and in that book they were saying um these things are so flimsy that uh, one of them, when landed during Operation Market Garden, landed in like a beet field or a potato field, and the potatoes started coming up through the cardboard bottom of the floor. And like guys were getting hit with these potatoes, and one of them, the Jeep literally fell through the floor and survived. But these things were such rickety canvas. It's just insane to think of the amount of weight that, that up their wings were able to support and to, to get out there. Well, so I think this is a perfect opportunity. Steve's already chimed in a little bit, but we didn't really give him uh, the introduction that he deserves as our special guest tonight. Uh, he he mentioned earlier that I forced him to be on here, and that's probably half true. Um, <laughs> Steve uh, Steve's a, become a really good buddy of mine. He's probably one of the uh, probably one of the best reenactors that I probably have ever met in in. And I say that because he really knows his stuff. He's he's not out to dress up and look cool. The guy really knows his stuff. He's taught me so much. I didn't know how much I didn't know until I met Steve. And, um, you know, I just I, I think of him like my stunt double. You know, he's a little bit tougher than me. Not quite as good looking. He, he's like a good stunt double for me. And uh, but so if anybody uh, just got real excited about reenacting with some of the stuff that Don was talking about, I think Steve could really give us a firsthand look on what it's like uh, being an airborne reenactor, uh, not walking around with an airborne patch on your sleeve, but actually 
going through the motions. Steve, can you can you enlighten some of our listeners on just uh, some of the experiences that you've had as an airborne reenactor, some of the things that you're responsible for, uh, and maybe talk a little bit about your recent um, trip to Oklahoma that you've had here just a couple weeks ago. Yeah, uh, so one of the groups that I'm associated with, and I have been for perhaps a little over 10 years now, is the World War II Airborne Demonstration Team located up in Frederick, Oklahoma. We actually are based out of an old Army Air Corps base where they used to train uh, B-25 pilots, and we have two planes of our own. We have a DC-3 and a C-47. Both are combat vets. One of, one was owned by us, and then the other was owned by the British, and have seen combat in D-Day, Market Garden, and so on operations. But as we come together, you know, the whole group is not just, you know, a bunch of reenactors. You have, like, former service members, current service members, and people from all walks of life, and we all come together for this one cause of, you know, remember, honor, serve, where we're trying to carry on the memory and the deeds of those that came before us, especially during World War II, during airborne operations. And that's not just the paratroopers, but it's the pilots, all the support people, and everyone that was able to help us win the fight. But we do actually jump out of C-47s using more modern-day uh, parachutes because the FAA requires us to. But... Uh, you know, uh, a good good friend of mine, he actually helps train a lot of the students that come in, you know, and the majority of them are reenactors. And then we do have those couple that, you know, it's a bucket list item. And my buddy, uh, John Tehan, he's the drill sergeant there. He runs the guys through uh, their days, gets them to their classes, wakes them up, checks their bumps out. But he says to all of them that this is where reenacting stops being fun. And what he's getting at uh, is, you know, you have to be physical, phys physically fit going through this course because you have to carry your load. You have to be able to get up on a platform, jump off of it, do your PLFs, put on the gear, sit in it for hours on end, getting a hanging harness, how to get yourself out of the issues, and then actually propel yourself out of the aircraft and get into a correct body position. And that um, participation at a living history event, it just brings it to a whole new level. I had the luxury, I don't know, about two years ago, we had an air show, and it was another group does the same thing. Um, we kind of positioned ourselves as living history historians out in the field where we're hidden from view, and they would come in and do the jump. Obviously, when they do the jump, they got to tend to all their gear so they can't participate, but we kind of set it up so that once they made the jump, it looked like we were them coming into the into the battle. But it just brings a whole new level. And it's so damn cool, especially as a living historian, to see people doing a static line jump and seeing those 12 guys coming out of those planes. And it's just, it's amazing. And I, I'll i give you credit, man. You, you got some guts because I talked to them and I found out how relatively affordable that training and participating with them was. But I got to thinking and it's like, if I was 18 or 20, but it's like, no, I'm 38. Uh, my parents are in a business. I got a kid. I got a lot more I'm responsible for now. And, and there's slight risk to it, but in the back of your head, you, you know, all your bravado goes out the window. You know, when it's just you and your friends sitting around drinking, oh, let's go skydiving. But then when it's actually someone's seriously considering it, you, you start to have a gut check time. Like, would I really be able to do the jump? And so credit to you guys and not only preserving history, but actually doing the deed and, and jumping out the planes, man. Well, and the big part about our group too is that the airborne contingent is just one item that we bring to shows. What you don't see is the background. So the guys that work on the planes are mm -hmm. ground crews. You know, I work a lot on the ground crews itself on the safety. I run the drop zone most of the time. Every once in a while, I'll get to jump out of the plane myself. But, you know, there is there are tons of support functions that come along with guys just jumping out of planes and we invite everyone down that we can i mean currently right now uh the the head of education down at the infantry museum at fort benning chris lewis he's not able to participate jump operations right now because he just had surgery on his foot but he came out and be and he just wanted to be a part of the group you know be a part of the history because the greatest part about being there is that we all regress back to our younger selves where we're 20 21 years old but it's we're all a bunch of nerds we all want to talk about world war ii stuff we want to share it and the best part too is is that i even learned there too because like i've got guys that you know uh that turn your m42s the like what at the front or man the line makes 
and make them look like an actual set of M42s using original canvas and that paratroopers actually use during either, you know, D-Day or Market Garden. So, and, and I think it would be an enjoyable experience for you just to come out. Absolutely. And, and you know, we were kind of talking about this 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 week, and at the event I was at, guy showed up. He'd been doing it for years. I've never come across him, at least in my time. But instantaneously, kind of like when Henry joined the show, uh, we hit it off perfectly. And the guy said, you know, one of his favorite things about going out to a Living History Weekend is you'll meet somebody you've never met in your life, but because you all have the same passion for the same topic, you, like, instantly, you know, you may not become best friends, but you'll have a conversation and at least enjoy each other's company. And it's, and like you said, you know, you don't really have that sort of interface with people with maybe exception of, you know, he, he was pointing out a few items, you know, a few things like, you know, maybe a country club, or apparently he's a, a whiskey guy he said, or down at this distillery <laughs> and things like that. But it's so true. And there's people I've known for nine years that I only see them during reenacting events because they live in Georgia or Alabama or throughout Florida. And, you know, you see them and it's like, oh, you feel like you just saw them last week. <laughs> and it's, and that's one of my other favorite things is it's like, you're, it's, you're getting one, you're getting out of the house, you know, you're sleeping on the hard ground for two days. The entire time I was out there, I only pulled my phone out to record stuff or pull my GoPros out. I came back and Carrie was talking about that concert where eight people died. I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, you didn't hear about that? I, like, I spent two days in 1944. I have no idea what's going on. I mean, I'm literally so out of the loop. I didn't know that eight people died at a concert until like this afternoon. And so it's just so nice to just step away and just get outside and just be around like-minded people talking about something we all have a passion for. Oh, I absolutely agree with you. And You know, that was, I just came back from our October jump school, spent two weeks up there. Same thing. I basically turned off my phone except for the, you know, take some pictures if I did or receive pictures, but, you know, just get that full immersion and walk away from everything. You know, what other time, you know, during the year do I get a chance to just ride around in one or two vehicles and jump out of planes and just hang out in a hangar and be with my friends who, you know, we all enjoy World War II. And it's not just the airborne stuff, but all types of the history that came part of World War II. If Jeff and uh, Henry don't mind, I want to kind of give you the classic WTSP treatment. And that is the first time we have someone on. Let's go back a little bit. Give us a little, you know, where you're from, where you grew up, and actually what, how you got bit by the history bug, and what got you from there to here today. If you don't mind giving us like the Cliff Notes version. Well, not a problem. Uh, I actually grew up all over uh, military family, so you know, you, you name the states, I've been there. But uh, one of the main places I did uh, set down a lot of roots on was in Delaware, and. You know, I always loved history because my dad, he would t always take me to museums. And, you know, we had local museums, especially the Dover Air Force Base uh, Air Mobility Museum. I actually started uh, doing plane restoration there. But one place that I actually really started to get into reenacting was this uh, coastal artillery battery called Fort Miles. And, you know, we would do semi pre-World War II and World War II style uh, get-ups. And we would actually have the gun batteries up and running, you know, we would learn the history behind everything and actually have the base for the most part fully manned where guys are running the guns up in the towers, communicating with each other, the spotlights. And then of course, too, you know, that just carried on where I got involved with the guys with the 40 who do the 45th and company K up in Pennsylvania, you know, started doing Reading air show. And then of course, to Fort Indian town gap. I that was going to ask you if you ever did fig before it got canceled. I, I did fig back in the day when it was fun. <laughs> yeah, I knew I knew the guys who were there because a lot of my Florida guys they would go every year and they were there the last year and I got the skinny on why it got canceled. And that's a damn shame, but uh, that was one I never got the opportunity to go to because it I it got canceled probably three or four years after I got into the hobby. Why did it get canceled? If you don't mind me asking, the unofficial thing from what I heard the the scuttlebutt, if you will, there was a lot of things leading up to it. Um, you know certain things being left around that looked like realistic bombs that weren't picked up. So Fort Indian town gap is a operating base. And so after the weekend goes, a lot of times they'd find grenades, or whatever laying around and they'd have to treat them like they're real and make sure. But the end all be all from what I heard, and this is unofficial. This is just the scuttlebutt I heard in the, in the community. It was 
there was a bad mortar accident. Guy damn near lost his hand, and it was just they couldn't take the liability anymore. Things just got too out of control, and either he did lose his hand or damn near lost his hand, but uh, damn near took his hand off. It had something to do with the mortar. And Steve, yeah, that's the same story I heard as well. Yeah, and so they're just like, look, we're an active military base, and uh, we just can't take this liability anymore. And uh, I, wow. I, from what I heard, it would have been building up, I guess. Each year with the planning, it was like they're a little more and more reluctant to do it just because there was things going on that they just weren't down for. And then that was just like the last straw. I was like, no, it, w- it was fun while it ran, but uh, no more. And it's completely understandable. I mean, that's a major incident to happen at an event. Yeah. So uh, what is your, obviously, um, the Air Corps stuff, but what's some of the other realms of expertise do you have a particular uh, theater of operations that you you're really into or you you do the gambit so i i i cover it all you can ask jeff if you ask me to dress up as something i can most likely put together something a whack but uh, i do enjoy the european theater of operations that that is my favorite um, most of my family members during world war ii did serve over in the european theater of operations my grandfather, he was in the Pacific. He was a CB, did, did all the island hopping with the Marines. But I, I just enjoy Europe a little bit more. And plus, too, when it starts getting cold out, I think more about Europe than I do, you know, the Pacific. That's completely understandable. Is that a typewriter in your foreground? It is, yeah. What kind of typewriter is that? It is a uh, Remington Model 1. Nice. Yeah, Paul, who listens to the show, he um actually when he does his living history, he brings out a field table, has the the typewriter and the whole gambit. That's kind of his little his little world that he gets into. But uh, yeah, hey, I, Dom. Yes. Uh, speaking of speaking of other uh, listeners, I wanted to uh, remind you, and maybe it should be a good time now to to mention. Didn't we get a, a pretty cool shout out from a listener after sure last do. episode? You know, I need to get in the production and make a mail call intro. Uh, but yes, mail call time. <clears throat> Via Facebook, if you guys want, you can email us at info, a mail call at WTSP.com or even info at WTSP.com. Or as this guy did, Mr. Roger Underwood, you can leave us a message on our Facebook page and either Jeff, Henry, or myself will get it. It says, hello, Don. I'm a recent couple of months listener, and I wanted to say hello and tell you guys that I like what you're doing, and I've been listening and re-listening. I have a connection with some GIs. My father was uh, in the PTO, my uncle PTO, my cousin was in the ETO. Grandfather and his brother were in World War One and a few more. I just want to say thanks for what you guys are doing. You, Henry, and Jeff are really good together, and I like hearing about all the things you have got going on in the books you've been reading. I would ask my dad to tell me a story when I was a little kid. Um, the really cool thing was is I came across some footage of him on YouTube. It was the only about, it was only about three seconds, but I'm 99% sure it was the old man. Um, he, he was part of the campaign in um, Manila and was at the uh, Santo Thomas internment camp. He's the guy with the steel pot. And he showed up in the email. He had a um, screenshot of the video. He's the guy with the steel pot in the carbine, Mr. Roger Underwood. Um, they said, I just thought I would share that with you. And um, I'd also share some of the affections I have with World War II history and all the things you guys do. Keep it up, Roger. And uh, thanks so much for the nice, kind words and a very cool um screenshot it's not often that you um see a picture of a family member on a youtube video well with the exception of henry there but uh a a friend of mine was actually down in naples at the um at the um florida museum for the holocaust and i did an interview with them probably episode four or five and her father was in 101st and she actually saw a picture of him at one of the concentration camps in the background and that was really um, blew her away to see, you know, you, you wouldn't think that, you know, you're walking through a Holocaust museum and you see a picture of your father when he was part of the liberation of one of the, the, uh, internment, I mean the, uh, concentration camps. So thank you, Roger, for the kind words. And, uh, as I said before, if you guys want to email us, send us an email at mail call at WTSP world war com or info at WTSP world war com. You guys have any books you want to suggest or that you're currently reading? Yeah, yeah, I've got I've got a couple here. Um, I think uh, I think most of our listeners know that I've been 
been really reading heavy on uh, on the air war in Europe lately, which is you know pretty pretty normal for me. You know, I go through my back and forth uh, with the Pacific and the ETO, like we probably all do, but. I've had this book for a while and I picked it up once. I read the first few pages and I was like, no, that was a waste. Uh, I I simply bought it because of the title and it had a cool cover, (laughs) the boys in the B-17. And you can see here by tech Sergeant uh, James Lee Hutchinson, he goes by Hutch. So I thought, okay, this is, this is a memoir. Um, It's very obviously self-published. He's actually, this is the third book he published. He's actually uh, written two others called through these eyes. And bombs away, uh, which I have not read, but I just happened to pick this one up. And the, I'll tell you the reason I put it down was there was a couple obvious like just just printing errors, just you know indents where there shouldn't have been, or a paragraph just a sentence gets broken and it's like a new paragraph, whatever. Like okay, I can kind of deal with some of that. Um, but he referred to Yamamoto as a general instead of oh, admiral. God. I was, yeah, and that's when I was like. Ah. So I put it down, and then I here just just recently, a few weeks ago, I said, "Man, I I want to know what this guy's story is. Like, you know what? Who cares? Who who cares about that stuff? Like, I don't want to be that guy because I hate it when people are that guy. So why would I be that guy? Man, I, I picked it up and I, I read it. It was briefly. I mean, it was so quick. I probably finished this thing quicker than most any other book I've read because I just I didn't want to put it down because he he does such a good job." kind of giving you he, he sets the tone uh chronologically at first and, and i will say he kind of gets away from his own story because he did come in late he, he he didn't get over there until uh autumn of 44 uh late uh, pretty much early winter i guess you'd say 44 45 uh so his first missions weren't until november december uh, in fact, I think his 10th mission was uh, the day that the Germans broke out during the bulge, December 16th of 44. So he didn't even fly a full complement. I think he only did about 20 combat missions out of the expected 35 at that time. Um, so he was ca- kind of late, but he was just, you know, fresh, young kid. Um, but it, it's it's really neat because he, he tells enough of his own story to get you interested. And then he breaks away and he kind of sets the tone. What was going on in the air war in Europe before he got like, what is he walking into? What was 1942, 43 like to, to really set the tone. Uh, and then on top of that, he just kind of peppers in uh, a story about a medal of honor recipient or something from his bomb group before 90. It's something that the historian pulled from somebody else that that served or he'll pull from, Oh, I knew this guy or he was in my Quonset hut you know, on another airplane, because, you know, all the enlisted guys, there was like four bomber crews per per Quonset hut, you know, for the enlisted guys. So it was somebody he knew of or played cards with that night, but didn't fly with, you know, necessarily. So it does a really, really neat job just kind of putting it all together for you. Um, and it, it's, it, 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 you learn a lot. I mean, it was funny, you know, the Army, the Army just knows how, they'll, they'll figure out a way to screw you over. Like, there's no... <laughs> getting around it i know that uh and steve knows that anybody who served like <laughs> you're not going to beat the system and, and this guy certainly couldn't either house always wins about... <laughs> so he goes to uh his primary school he's a radio operator okay so he goes to radio school in sioux city iowa in the winter yeah. okay it takes all winter to get through radio operator school then he has to go to gunnery because, you know, like either 24 or B-17, these guys got to be able to shoot these 50 cows. So he's got to go to gunnery school. It's late spring when he's done with radio operator school. So guess where he goes to gunnery school in the middle of the summer? Florida. Yuma, Arizona. <laughs> <laughs> Yuma, Arizona. So he's like, you know, 12 degrees below zero to 120 in the shade. No AC and to be found. after gunnery school... Then he's got to go back for, uh, I think it was like crew training. Well, instead of going to Sioux City, Iowa, he goes to Sioux Falls, Iowa <laughs> for the following winter where it's a million degrees below zero. You know, so it's just like this, This you just kind of get those candid, um, sometimes the stuff you don't always hear about, uh, but the stuff for like reenactors 
is just gold mm -hmm. because that's all part of the guy's story. Um, and he was on, and you can see for people that are streaming now, you can see this is his crew of a B-17. There's seven guys. Because at this time, later on in the war, it wasn't a full 10 crew, you know, so you've got a pilot, co-pilot, navigator, and then your gunners, but didn't always have a ball turret gunner because, again, because of the Mickey unit that they replaced the ball turret, you know, the big radar dome. Um, they would sometimes have a command officer or a command pilot. Uh, there would be an extra guy in the radio room with him, sometimes throwing the, the metal chafe to throw off the German radar. Uh, there'd be just some E6 that was like, hey, you're the toggler today. So they don't have a bombardier. They've got a different toggler. So kind of interesting, you know, to, to see how we really had to evolve and, and really learn as we were fighting that war uh, how, to, uh, how to better bomb, how to bomb more accurately, um, and how to, you know, try to keep the cost down. But at the end of the book, it's really interesting uh, talking about, his uh the trip over to one of the cities in Czechoslovakia where they got nailed by me 262s that was interesting reading about that for sure mm. i'll have to check that one out as i've been saying i need to start catching up on my army air corps stuff and so i i'll have to uh have you guys suggest some reading material how about you henry what have you been reading lately well i just finished mcmanus's americans at d-day uh like i said and then my plan had been to jump on in and because uh, I've got the Americans at Normandy, which was his companion volume. Um, I, I was going to tackle that next, but then I started reading Crucible of Hell by Saul David. Um, I heard about this book from Paul on World War II TV, which, as you guys know, I was on Friday night or Friday afternoon. But Saul, I found out had has just written a book on k-35 which of course was my dad's unit in world war ii so richard frank suggested to saul that i read the manuscript and saul mm -hmm. wanted me to so i did so i just finished that and then saul asked me to write the forward for it so i got that done and sent back to him um wow, in the awesome. meantime uh, in the meantime i thought well i probably should read crucible of hell because you know i really wanted to become more intimately familiar with his writing style. Um, so I'm probably 150 pages into this. And then my, my next book, I'm honestly thinking about picking up uh, one of the, or I've got it on my shelf. I'm thinking about grabbing it and reading the Black Cross Red Star. It's a book on the air war in the Eastern Front that nice. I've had. I read it, you know, 10 or 12 years ago. But I'm thinking about rereading that. So, uh, you know, we'll see what happens there. But I should have Crucible of Hell finished in the next few days. Are you guys kind of like me where if you read a book on a certain campaign, you try to stay there for a book or two before transitioning, or do you just fly up and down the gambit? I, I like, well, you know, Steve said, as it gets cooler, I, Jeff, I've heard you say it. I've heard you say it, too. We're all in the same boat. As it gets cooler, I start thinking ETO more and more. Mm -hmm. I just started watching Band of Brothers again because we're, we're going to be in New Orleans in January for the – 20th symposium on that so i'm really well you know we've been talking about airborne stuff but you know usually i'll kind of stay in a in a groove there and then as it warms up i'll start thinking more pto stuff how about you steven what have you been reading lately so unfortunately i, I don't read too many uh first-hand accounts or stories uh currently I, i'm deep into the m1 helmet book i can grab it because i can't remember the uh author's name but uh reading the m1 helmet of the world war ii gi by uh peter osterman he lives in carentan france i got to meet him nice. if, uh, are you familiar with uh jay murray i had him on he was one of my first guests i think if you go back to episode eight or nine i had him on and he gave me a pretty good off the top of his head background of the compression helmets and how to identify them and the whole nine yards on that. And that's, if you guys are new to the show and if you haven't gone back and listened to that episode, uh, tune in and check out that Jay Murray episode, but go ahead. Yeah, definitely. So, so Peter right here, he was the one that actually got Jay Murray started. Uh, he had helped him out a lot. And a lot of the helmets that are in here is what Jay Murray was modeling his equipment after. So, you know, a lot of the original parts that he was using all came from France. So and wow. the, 
And so I, I actually got a chance to, during the 75th anniversary, I was in Carentan, and I got the chance to talk to Peter. He even signed the book, really, really nice of him. But I just kept talking to him about, you know, helmets and World War II stuff. He actually closed up his whole shop uh, for me and just took me into, like, his literally his attic and just showed me this massive collection of stuff that that was left over after World War II, like, just D-Day items, you know, post-D-Day. Like, everything was there. Like, I saw weapons, parachutes, flight belts, preservers, parts of vehicles. Wow. But... The, this helmet right here, though, like if you're definitely collecting to, you know, if you're definitely collecting like helmets that haven't been restored or just all original and just how to identify things, you know, this is a really good, uh, really good look to have. So that way, you know, you can identify and also you, you learn a little bit of the history of like why they use certain materials, why they went away from certain materials. So, Isn't it interesting how a hunk of metal with some chin straps can hold your imagination i'm the same way i'm looking in my studio right now i got six i got six helmets in this room right now and i was that's why i had jay murray on i'm like i can't explain to people what it is about the m1 helmet because that's how i got started in this hobby and you know as the time has gone by every time i find myself a new front seam i just sell one of my rear seams on on ebay to get rid of them and um within the last year i've gotten a original front seam d-bell helmet that has the original paint some point in its life it was a range helmet because um, you can see where the, underneath the paint strokes on some of the the uh, paint bleed you can still see the yellow paint um i have my hollywood holly liner in it that's the plastic ones i just put that one in there and then um this weekend i premiered my recently restored I had to paint over the five or six logos but in the photos i post on instagram that's a uh, d-bail front seam rear helmet that was restored and, uh, but I'm the same, I don't know what it is about the damn M1 helmet. I just, I want to know everything about them. It's just, it, it's just one of those things that people are like, it's a, it's a helmet. Who cares? I'm, I'm just one of those guys in an M1 helmet camp. I can't explain it. No, I'm right there with you. You know, I always wanted an M1 helmet, especially when I started off, you know, with reenacting, you know, I had to start <clears> with a post war helmet, but when I finally got my first World War II GI helmet, you know, that I was, that was an exciting day for me. That in an M1 Garand belt. Mm-hmm. That, I thought it was the coolest belt in the world. <laughs> My buddy Jerry had the fortune to take care to take advantage of someone else's misfortune. Uh, he found a local museum that was going out, and he basically bought their entire uh, M1 helmet collection. And he's got the one with the flip-up ears and all that. And I asked him, I said, well, do you have a correspondence helmet, i.e. the photographer helmet? Are you familiar with those, Jeff or Henry? I am not, no. It, Steven, I'm sure you're familiar with the, the photography helmet. It's the one that kind of looks like a medieval night helmet. They actually cut the front visor off and then re-rivet it on there so you can flip it up so you can hold the camera up to your face and the visor does not push the camera away. So the visor actually has been cut off and then riveted back on so it flips up so you don't have to take your helmet off to hold your camera up to your face. And they're very rare, but if you go online, um, you can see how they weren't done at the factory because every one of them's cut a different way. But it kind of reminds you of that old night visor that flips up on the helmet. They're pretty cool and I would... I would love to see one of those in real life, but that's one of the real super rare ones that they made for the journalists and the photographers. Hmm. Wow. That sounds like a field mod. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Like, like you do a quick image search and you'll see four of them and none of them are exactly the same. <clears throat> so it's, they're pretty cool. But, um, Henry, you kind of brought band of brothers up and I sent you guys a picture. So, uh, I'm going to just get into it. <clears throat> I'm going to call this the WTSP movie review review. And one of the ongoing jokes with me and Jeff and Henry is that Henry liked the thin red line and Jeff and I not so much. Oh man, we're going to talk about it again? And well, I didn't bring it up. Well, he brought it up. I brought it up because I want to be fair. And I said that if I could find it for free, I would watch it again. And lo and behold, it's on Roku TV for free. And I will say the first time I saw it, it was in the late 90s, early 2000s when I really didn't know anything about World War II. I just liked war movies. A Band of Brother hadn't even been out yet because that movie came out in 97, 98. And I found it somewhere. Yeah, I found it at one of those family-owned movie stores <laughs> on video. I bought it, watched it, and I wasn't a fan. And I don't think I'd seen it since then. But now that I know a little bit about Guadalcanal and the PTO, I rewatched it. I'm still not saying it was a stellar movie, but I will say I appreciate it a lot more after the second viewing. I want to ask Jeff, when was the last time you seen it? 
I don't remember. It's so forgettable. <laughs> I have seen it twice. I will. Okay. I will. I have seen it twice. I saw it when it first came out because I was super pumped. Because after seeing Save It Private Ryan in theaters, and I was like, I don't know, thirteen or fourteen years old. So, but I was a huge like Pacific War buff. I mean, mm-hmm. it was B seventeens, you know, and then the Pacific. So. After Saving Private Ryan, I was like, okay, I can't, I, they, they got to make a movie like this, but in the Pacific. And that's what I thought the Thin Red Line was going to be. Well, I'm, and, I was right there with you. I mean. Yeah. And, and Guadalcanal was like my thing. And that was the one island that I knew more about as a young high school kid than any other campaign in World War II. So it was like win-win. And then I watched, and I'll admit, so the first time I saw it, I knew, like, it was over my head is, was the problem. So I saw it again, and I want to say I was in the Army when I watched it again. So that's been at, you know, 20 years ago, somewhere in there. So it was equally as disappointing the I second time. I think one of the downfalls yeah. of that movie is it's, and Henry might agree with this, it's kind of a movie for people who know about Guadalcanal. Cause there's a lot of stuff they're showing that they weren't explaining with narration. And, right. and so if you don't like, for example, when they're on the ship after Sean Penn, you know, finds the homeboy who was camping out with the natives and trying to go AWOL and they're, they're down in the, down in the ship and they're showing the guys talking and, and all this and that. And all of a sudden they show the guys pounding on the door, screaming, let me out of here. And they make no reference to it. They didn't, you know, they didn't say, well, you know, the Navy had a, policy of not letting us up on top when we're in dangerous areas and there's a lot of things that are just jumping back and forth that the narration or anything didn't even didn't even discuss which were the things that can kind of confuse me the first time i saw it i didn't understand at, this movie opens up and he's hanging out on a beach with a bunch of natives and what the hell is that all yeah, about really and one of my things i did enjoy about the fact is they showed the native scouts and one of them looked just like vuzo but with a beard and i really enjoyed that I will say, you know, it's, it is lacking on the action at first, but, um, I don't hate it as much as I used to. Um, I enjoyed it now that I know about Guadalcanal. I still won't say it's one of my favorite World War II movies, but I will say I've been unreasonably hard on it. And, um, I I did enjoy it. I won't say it's one of my favorites, Yeah, but the thing, I mean, like you, Jeff, I have a penchant for Guadalcanal and I mean, a lot of it was filmed on Guadalcanal. See, I think maybe the problem is that I stopped listening to Don when he said Sean Penn. Everything <laughs> after that, I haven't heard. I didn't hear a word. <laughs> he said the same thing about Midnight uh, Midnight Clear when I said Ethan Hawke. <laughs> no, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a... You know who I saw in there? And I could be wrong, because, of course, this was five years before Band of Brothers, but it looked like a very... The actor who played Joe Toy, I think, was a background actor in that. He was Acevedo. Yeah, he was... He, yes... He was on tell screen nothing, for like tells, six or seven. Tell me nothing. Yeah, he he was on. That there. was him. Yes. Yep. And there was a lot of a lot of young cats on there. Um, I think the the other kind of thing, and I get where they were going. And obviously, they the only part of the remake was the title. I guess the movie itself had nothing to do with the original one. Um, who the hell played the commander? Um, oh, anyhow, uh, Nick Nolte. Nick Nolte. His character at some point seemed a little unnecessarily harsh. It was like, they're just trying yeah. to make him the world's biggest dick. God damn you, Staros. <laughs> but you know, all in all, I definitely have to, to say it's better than I remember it because once again, it's clearly a movie about Guadalcanal that was intended for people who knew about Guadalcanal. And, uh, some of the, you know, the battle scenes and of itself were, were, were pretty damn good. And it, it was, I, it's worth a watch if you have Roku. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying pay that's paid through watching, but if you want to watch it for free, Look, Steve, have you ever hey, seen it? I want to include you in this conversation. Have you well, seen Thin Red Line? I, I'm not a big fan of the Thin Red Line, even though I do think it's George Clooney's finest film that he's ever starred in. But the, I think the storytelling could have been done a little bit better. Yes, the action scenes were great, the uniforms, all that other crap. But I got lost in the fact that. It, the story wasn't really told in a way that, you know, because I'm, you know, I don't know that much about Guadalcanal. Yes, I know it's an island. People fought on it. Yes. But I don't know the true ins and outs. Yes, I do know some of the nerd stuff about, like, you know, the little nuances and everything. But the storytelling wasn't the greatest. And I think that if they would have done it a lot better, yeah, I think if I would have liked it more. 
Yeah, it's like they left the storytelling to the characters in first person. And when Nick Nolte was doing his voiceover work, um, it was all growly. You could barely understand them. And some of the other, like the uh, the cat who was hanging out with the um, the natives, it's like I kind of felt like he only got the role in a movie because he won an award for Pay It Forward with the little cat from Sixth Sense. It's like I kind of feel like you know that's why he was in there. But it had a huge cast. Going oh, yeah. back and rewatching it now, it's like they had just about every damn person in Hollywood on that movie. Well, absolutely. I think I think you said it best. If they're if they're gonna go in with the idea of making a movie for people, for their audience to, that knows already about Guadalcanal, they made that movie for ten people. Yeah. The weird thing <laughs> like, is, it got nominated for all kind like, of awards. If you're, if you're gonna make a movie like, <laughs> hey, we're going after the audience that knows about this campaign. Okay, great. <laughs> it's a very loose market. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I was gonna say. Then don't release it in theaters. Sir. The movie that I have not changed my opinion on, which is also on Roku for free, is Wind Talkers. I only made it through about fifteen minutes of that, <laughs> and that's I just had playing in the background while I'm doing computer repair. And there's just, I mean, I know we don't like to nitpick on uniforms, but when you got a close up of freaking uh, homeboy's foot and his boondockers have like modern day construction worker treads on, it's like yeah, but yeah, just, <laughs> I feel bad for Adam Beach. <clears throat> Because I do like him as an actor. And I just I feel bad for him so, being in that movie. Guys, let me ask this question because I never saw Wind Talkers. Okay. Uh, or or Wind Breakers, <laughs> as I know you guys call it. <laughs> what about it was so bad? The acting. Nicolas Cage is acting. There's a there's an opening scene where Nicolas Cage is having a flashback to when his whole platoon got wiped out. And okay. the acting of the guys is just Okay. It's it, here. It's bad. I'll, 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 very simple. Henry, have you ever seen an episode of the A Team? <laughs> yeah, that that that's it in a nutshell. They have unlimited ammunition, no magazine changes, <laughs> and they don't hit anything. I will say the opening scene when they land on Saipan, they spent a shit ton of money on a pyrotechnic <laughs> and filming that one scene. Like that scene is where half of the movie's budget yeah. is, and it's actually. I will- it's I a- will say this that the the my predecessor uh, in my in my last museum job was an advisor for that film. Hmm. So and he's the one who really who, who liked, was that, Jeff? Who was that? Well, I don't know if I want to mention the name, but he he he. Uh, You're talking about at the Nimitz. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, don't say the name, man. I'm just I knew some people out there because I did take some of my dad's <laughs> stuff out there about 20 years ago. Not all of it but a few things yeah and i absolutely. met a guy out there it was just funny because that guy didn't make a very good impression on my wife <laughs> okay <laughs> well, well we'll leave that there uh, but so even after seeing it then to hear from like his perspective you know um what he tried to convince them to do or to fix or to not do and henry you know you've been there um to and so then you go back and like you look for the ridiculousness then it really ruins it for you yeah um, yeah and then my son uh i guess he was probably he's 15 now so he was probably i don't know 10 11 12 somewhere there he's like hey dad i saw the shadow of a helicopter watching wind talker <laughs> you know, the, the camera bird like no way and then he pointed out like yeah sure enough that that's yeah that's a helicopter i, I may have to watch it just to see that like, yeah that sounds awesome it, yeah, jeff i do blame that on you though you've ruined him you've ruined war movies for him because all the <laughs> we do on uniforms and everything else you know we've ruined him for life if- absolutely <laughs> well and that's that's the burden we all have to that's the cross we all have to bear as living historians and you know when it comes to our own groups, we're not quite stitch Nazis, but when it comes to damn war movies, we're after every, oh, that's we'll not the right apart. button. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, it, I was going to say if Henry, if you watch that movie and the mind state of like, you're doing your own version of mystery science theater 3000, where it's you're, you're prepared for watching a bad movie and you're intending on cracking on it, give it a run. Um, and it's sad too, because that is a subject matter that really needed more, more light shine on it, you know, the sure. code talkers and all that, but just having Nicholas Cage as the leading man followed up by Christian Slater. It was just, 
the casting was just a bad run. Um, yeah. The you know the the cat who played the main Native American from Joe Joe Dirt he did a good job. The the Adam ensemble. Beach. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. He's in Flags of Our Fathers. He played Ira Hayes. Yeah, and the ensemble Native bad. Americans did really like, good. He's a great actor. I, I feel bad that that is on his resume. If if him and his ensemble cast would have carried that without Christian Slater and Nicolas Cage, if they would have just put some no names in there, it would have been and some no name better actors. It's it's John Woo though. Yeah, it's John Woo film. Yeah, so it doesn't matter who's acting. Yeah, I was gonna, and I was going to say in a different director, but yeah, uh, I don't know. It's just it's a damn shame, really. <laughs> it really <Yeah>. is. <laughs> well. Before we go, I'll go ahead and put in a, a shameless plug since we're on movies. Uh, this coming weekend, happy Veterans Day, everybody, to all those who served. We're, we're, we're almost to that time of year when guys like us just want to hide for the day. And, you know, it is what it is. Uh, but uh, Walking Point, we've mentioned Woo-hoo. that movie maybe once or twice on West Escada. But Walking yeah. Point is going to be uh, there's a film festival in Franklin, Tennessee. This coming weekend, and some of the lead cast is going to be up there uh, for that film fest. So we're really excited about that. Hopefully, we can uh, bring home an award or two from from that <laughs> film festival as we're kind of wrapping up. I think there's maybe only one more after that, and then we're going to, I guess, do whatever the executive producer and director want to do with it after that. Um, but I, I can't wait. I, I, you know, obviously, I know Don has. Uh, seen the movie mm-hmm. I, I really can't wait for for henry to to critique it i'm looking forward i'm looking it's forward still to on that. amazon video uh, right it's still up on amazon ain't it yes it's still on amazon prime yeah jeff yeah. and you you sent me and i am going to watch that but you sent me i think a link to it or something yeah i sure did yeah um and i know you're not real savvy with that stuff either so i've, I've sent a pigeon he is on his way or you can just go ask your son to help you he is 15. He'll be able to I, pull up 30 seconds. My son's 13, man. He'll even better. Even time. better. The younger they are, the quicker like, they Daddy, are. Daddy, I got this. Just let me do it. If you have a three-year-old niece, they'd probably get it up even faster than the 13-year-old. The young cats are really good at that. And for those uh, Marines listening, um, active and or retired, um, you know, even though I'm a civilian, I have no right to say this, but to give credit where credit's due, um, two days from now will be the Marine Corps' birthday, November 10th. So um, happy birthday for those of you in the – in the Marine Corps who, uh, who are going to be celebrating that. Yeah. But, uh, Happy birthday. All that Semper Fi stuff. <laughs> Henry, you, you have a busier schedule than anybody else. You, you've hit the ground running with your desire to get back into the world war two community. So with that being said, do you have anything you need to plug? You usually got a grocery list of, uh, things <laughs> no, you, not, you need to get out there. Not really. Uh, did the Paul Wood edges world war two TV Friday. So that's up on YouTube. And we'll put that and, uh, up on our site too, so you guys can find it. Yeah, that that seemed to to be pretty well received. Um, I think we Leighton and I've been talking. There's another We Happy Few five hundred six um, coming up probably in a month or so. I think the focus of that one is going to be back on the Pacific and probably Peleliu. I was watching, um, uh, not to cut you off, but just on that topic of his podcast, I was watching one of the earlier ones he did where he had the guy who played Blythe and. And Sar- yeah. Sergeant Martin, but I had it on in my st- my shop, and so I didn't see the intro. And I'm watching. I'm like, "Who's the cat with the gray hair and the ascot and the super small glass?" And then I realized, "Holy shit, that's Johnny Martin." It- he looks so different now because he has like the Einstein yeah. look going. He had an ascot on and like round glasses. It took me like ten minutes to figure out who he was. Like, holy they, hell! They just did an episode this past weekend, which I my wife and I were busy doing stuff. I didn't watch it, but it, they were doing. Uh, it was back on Band of Brothers, and they were doing replacements. I think that was the episode that they were focusing on for that for that run of We Happy Few Five Hundred Six. Um, and Leighton sent me a link to it, but I haven't watched it yet. But um, but yeah, that's chugging on along. The actor who played so, Blythe said that you know they didn't include him in the boot camp to make him kind of feel isolated to uh, to help develop that character. But he was mm-hmm. saying he was happy because he honestly said if they would maybe do the boot camp, he said, I am so, um, back then at least, and probably even now, he said, I was so, I'm such a puss that he said, I would have, he said, I probably wouldn't have gotten sued because I probably wouldn't have walked off the set because I wouldn't have been able to handle the physical requirements of doing the boot camp. So I was a little mm-hmm. surprised to hear that. But yeah, he, 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 and on that episode, they also had, uh, the cat who played, um, 
the guy crap uh, who hung out with Nixon and um, winners. Um, the one who was keeping his um, parachute for his wife for Kitty. Oh, oh um, yeah, I'm hearing a lot of rumblings. Sergeant Will or wasn't it the Lieutenant Welsh? Uh, yes, he was on that too. But the actor, I can't remember his name, but I know who you're talking about. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. So that uh, that was a pretty, and it was basically one of his. Um, it was one of their a teaser episode. So what in the full episode was kind of like, here's the open one. Here's what our show's about. You want to see the full version, go to our website. But yeah, it was, it was good. And, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. How about you, Steve? You got anything coming up? You got a, um, for people out in your area who might be interested in, you know, joining up with your, uh, the jump crew or anything, you got any plugs or uh websites you want to get out there? Well, no, uh, I do always want to, you know, throw out, you know, the World War two ADT. Don, I, I suggest come on out, join up, come jump with us uh it's a full world war ii experience over a lot of the other groups that are out there i really can't say any more about the groups that are out there because i just don't you know it's not my job to talk about that yeah that's why i didn't but bring I, up any names come on out come sign up jump with us i mean there's guys out there that are old enough to be my dad in their 70s that are out there jumping, still doing it with us keeping you know the spirit alive of world war ii remembering everyone and, you know, and it's not just, you know, 101st, 82nd. We got guys out there doing paramarine. We, you name it, it's out there. So, and we just got a bunch of guys that are doing Canadians. We have the French that come out here and jump jump with us. So they do all the French commando and insurgency, the jet birds. So, I mean, that was every French that's airborne-wise, it's out there. And then, of course, too, you know, Mr. Sledge, I... I would invite you out there. Uh, our Marine contingent, uh, they, they would absolutely have a million questions to ask you, of course. <laughs> we need that to. That sounds pretty cool, but I'm too old for that. <laughs> well, then you don't have to come jump. We'll just, you know, you just drive around in the Jeeps with us and just go tear assing around on the drop zone. <laughs> I, that would be cool, but wh- where physically is this located now? Sorry, Don. I know no, you're about no. to ask something. I'm... It's in Frederick, Oklahoma. Oh, Oklahoma. Okay. <laughs> You know, I, th- I would, I've been thinking we need to figure out logistic wise. We, the three of us need to figure out a, a way to meet up in person one day. And, uh, that would be really goddamn cool. Cause, um, I haven't seen Jeff yeah. in, in a minute. And y'all could just come to my air show in March. Just saying. <clears throat> one may make the argument that, um, Henry and I are geographically closer to each other. So it'd be more advantageous for you to come our way. <laughs> I, I hear what you're saying, Don, but if there are going to be a lot of warbirds at this air show, that mm-hmm. could be pretty cool. Yeah. When is that When is that uh, air show again, Jeff? Get that plug in there. The Yeah, the 19th of March, 2022. It's the 30th annual Blue Bonnet Air Show in Vernon, Texas, here at the museum, uh, the Highland Lakes Air Museum uh, that you hear me talk a lot about. Uh, our own little company B will be out there doing weapon demonstrations. I'm hoping Steve will be out there again. Uh, he's got a few toys that... I like to, uh, to, you know, blow some brass through. Um, we've got, I- I'm working on one World War II vet, but there should be at least one other one. You know, of course, this is a five months away. Uh, yeah. so you never know. <laughs> Logistics yeah. are a little, little too early to, to get to, to, to really firm that up. Um, but, uh, you know, last year we had a, a couple, not that this has to do with World War II, but we had the two A-10 Warthogs, you know, the A-10 demonstration team came out to the air show last year, kind of finished everything off uh, for us, um, which was, it really is a crowd pleaser. If you've never seen an A-10, I mean, it's just, it's a cool part of the air show, uh, you know, besides the fact of having the the B-25s, the C-47s, and usually a P-51, and sometimes some of the tour, tour, tour birds will come through. They have any um, Corsairs? It's, it's hit or miss with those Corsairs, yeah. Um, you know, that's <clears> the kind of stuff, you probably need to go to Wings Over Dallas for. They've got a mm. lot more uh, birds flying. That's always usually the last weekend of October. They, that just happened, you know, over Halloween. Um, I think the Stewart Air Show. Much, I think Stewart Air Show had air show. Yeah, they had them. I think two years ago. But like Jeff said, there there's so few flight, you know, that are capable of flight that they're hit or miss. Like it's even the Stewart Air Show doesn't have them every year. It's like, oh, we got them this one time, right. and who knows the next time. And you know. And I worked the living history part of the Wings Over Dallas since uh, 2016. And uh, that's just kind of really taking a backseat for me. And it sounds like they've 
just it's not what it used to be like anything else in the reenacting world uh, but one of the things that we will have at Burnett that they used to have at Wings Over the House is a good friend of mine, Denny Hare, who is recognized by the United States Army as the General Patton uh, reenactor for the United States <laughs> Army, has traveled uh, has traveled the world speaking as General Patton, has written a six-volume set of books about Patton's command just during the Third Army days, uh, is very close with the family. The family uh, comes to him questions about their grandpa or great grandpa uh so he comes out again he's another crowd pleaser he kind of starts to he, he sets the tone gets everybody excited does his uh you know grease in the tank treads with their gut speech mm-hmm. um and, and of course there to just take pictures so i mean it, it's an air show in texas in march when things couldn't be prettier around here in, in this neck of the woods you know in, in the hill country with the blue bonnets in full bloom and it's not 100 degrees um so it's just it's a really fun time it, I, I look forward to it every year um so uh now is that a yeah. weekend gig or is that one of those things that starts like on a thursday and goes through to sunday how many days is it it's a it's a one day event it's just saturday okay cool yeah yeah i'll have to maybe figure something out because uh, i'd love to get back out to texas again it's been too long. I, I think it'd be cool yeah Make, make it happen. Well, guys, I think that is going to just about wrap it up for this episode of the uh, What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. I want to thank everybody for uh, hanging out with us. Thank you, Stephen, for hanging out with us and uh, giving us a little background of what you do. And, uh, you know, it's always interesting to talk to somebody who actually jumps out of those bad boys and uh, has such a passion and a wealth well, of knowledge. Oh, n- not a problem. My pleasure. And uh, thanks to Jeff for uh, booking you on the show. And um, I'd be remiss to say or not say that this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast has been brought to you by our friends at At Computers. At Computers has been providing IT solutions all of Southwest Florida since 2004 and while well, the rest of the world since uh, remote login has become a necessity. And so even if you don't live in Southwest Florida and you have some minor computer problems, network problems, they can help you. Give them a call at 239-283-1120 or hit them up at their website act-capecoral.com. And please, if you're wired on the internet... Head over to YouTube and like and subscribe to our channel. We have exceeded 500. Now we're working on that long hell highway to 1,000 subscribers. And um, as always, if you want to be a member of the OG5, as we were kind of joking around on uh, before we went live, please head over to uh, WTSPWorldWar2.com or you can just go to Patreon.com and search for Digital 410. Sign up. It's a dollar a month. There's a plan for $3.50 a month and $7.50 a month as well. If you do the $7.50 a month plan, you do get a free T-shirt after your second month. So thank you guys so much for hanging out with us, and we will talk to you shortly. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>